On this episode of Wavemaker Conversations, with spring training underway and Little League in full swing, at least where I live in the South, we explore the proposition that baseball is a road to God. I don't make a claim that baseball is a road to God for everyone or even for most people. The claim that I make is that if you pay attention to baseball, if you see it uh, as it's supposed to be seen, where the big action happens between the pitches, if you, if you understand the intensity of the observation of the small but meaningful elements of baseball, you're thereby developing the skills of the mystic. That's John Sexton, former professor of theology, Harvard Law School grad, and for the past 13 years, president of NYU. In Game 7 of the 1955 World Series, when the nuns released his 8th grade class from school, John Sexton sprinted home with his friend to catch the last three innings of the game, whereby they took the crucifix off a wall of Sexton's house to pray for a Brooklyn Dodgers victory. And when that victory came, Sexton writes, his friend raised his arms in exultation, releasing the crucifix, whereupon the laws of physics drove the head of Christ into my mouth, chipping my front tooth. I wore that chipped tooth, writes Sexton, unrepaired as a visible memento for nearly 50 years. I visited John Sexton, his teeth now perfect, on a bitter cold day in New York, at his office on the top floor of the breathtaking NYU library, where he was joined by one of his oldest friends. This is our 40th year together. Is this our 40th year? Yeah. And you and your wife met in his class. Which class specifically? Not only did we meet in his class, but it was in civil procedure. Thank you both. John Sexton, president of NYU, and Professor Arthur Miller, former president of law at Harvard, and now head of the NYU... Former professor of law. What did I say? President, you said. Former professor of law. There is no president of law, but former professor... Well, if there were a president, (laughs) Arthur would be the president. Former professor of law... John is doing so well, I'm not going to say a word. (laughs) Former professor of law at Harvard, and now head of, do I have it right, the media... I'm sorry, the uh, sports and society program at NYU. Yes, it's actually, technically, it's an institute, the Tisch Sports Institute, and the Sports and Society program is a piece of that. It's our think tank. I've come here because six years ago during the Obama inauguration, I was standing online. I thought, well, this is a historic experience. And I was standing online in the very cold weather and chatting up the person next to me. And when I asked him what he did for a living, so I'm the president of NYU, I said, oh, that's interesting. And, uh, you know, do you teach any classes, by the way? So, yes, I love to teach. I teach a very popular class called Baseball as a Road to God. So here I am with this Wavemaker Conversations podcast and I thought, you know, spring is coming soon. I looked it up and subsequently, I guess, you have written the book and I've read it. Baseball is a Road to God. And near the beginning of this book, you have a quote from Hall of Fame infielder Rogers Hornsby who says, people ask me what I do in winter when there's no baseball. I'll tell you what I do. Do you remember the end of the quote? I stare out the window and wait for spring. Here we are It's a bitter, bitter cold day. Are you both staring out the window and waiting for spring? Every day, 
Almost the first thing I do when I wake up is I go to the New York Times and I turn to the sports page and I turn and scan every sports page looking for a baseball story. And on days when there's no baseball story as there haven't been recently, that's the end of the day. I feel like going back to bed. John Sexton. I'm not in Arthur's league in so many ways, and here I am yet again not in his league in that regard. I have to say, for me, baseball is a blissful part of my life, and uh, as you know from the book, it's a part where I think that we can learn the skills of touching the transcendent, although I do always scan the sports pages for baseball stories. I do read them before I read any other story whether it's Super Bowl Monday or not. I don't, I don't go back to bed. The title of your book is Baseball, Baseball as a Road to God. You know, right now, my daughter is the only girl on her Little League baseball team. She's playing baseball right now in Atlanta, Georgia, which leads me to the question. I mean, they're playing baseball all year long. Is it easier to get closer to God in Atlanta than it is in New York? The, the short answer is uh, no. Uh, it's not easy to get closer to anything in Atlanta than in New York. <laughs> but but uh, to be serious, the, the, uh, the longer answer would be this. Uh, I don't make a claim that baseball is a road to God for everyone or even for most people. The claim that I make is that uh, if you pay attention to baseball, if you see it uh, as it's supposed to be seen, where the big action happens between the pitches, if you, if you understand the intensity of, of, of the observation of the small but meaningful elements of baseball, that you're thereby developing the skills of the mystic. And in that way, you're more likely not only to, to break through to a different plane in the course of an occasional baseball game, but you're more likely to break through to that plane in general. So, so I, I don't overclaim here. Uh, and the claim that I make is not geographic. It's, 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 it's not site specific so that Atlanta is different from New York. But in general, it's important that we recognize that Atlanta is different from New York and New York is the center of the universe. Oh, as good natured as that ribbing was, I should have interjected there. I used to live in New York back when it was the center of the universe, but I've been living in Atlanta for 20 years which now makes Atlanta the center of the universe. I should have said that, but I wasn't quick enough. I didn't think to say it at the time, so it doesn't count. Now, when I did this interview a couple of weeks ago, we were in the middle of a wave of cheating scandals in sports and society. So I wanted to know from these two leading educators, the president of NYU and a legendary Harvard law professor, how do you answer the questions of my teenage son and many of his friends who wonder, with so many people cheating and getting ahead, how are we honest kids who play by the rules expected to win? John Sexton. So I think the first thing you want to do is make sure he defines winning correctly. And if he defines winning correctly, you, you win if you play the game with purity of heart. If you play the game as well as you can, but you play it by the rules and you don't cut corners, you lose if you take steroids to enhance your performance. You've already declared defeat. 
so I think that's the important message to get across uh, to our children and to the next generations. We are all victims of original sin. We're, we're all going to fail, uh, and we shouldn't get into a world that's too bipolar where even the slightest failure and we could have all sorts of fun here now doing a law professor's game uh, the way Arthur does it in class uh, by, by, by saying well is the spitball as bad as steroids how close is it to steroids and so forth and so on you don't want to teach your son that even the slightest transgression is nuclear <laughs> Uh, but I'd start off with the ideal, which is you win when you play the game well and purely. The score is the next level of the definition. Arthur Miller? I agree with John. After all, since time immemorial in baseball, people have been stealing bases. Uh, <laughs> one of the things my institute is working very, very hard on is trying to change the dialogue and the teaching and the messages that go to young people, middle school and high school, when they play competitive sports. It could be baseball, it could be football or basketball. Um, we are holding periodic sessions with high school coaches, with team, team captains, eventually we'll hold sessions with parents to try and say to them there are a variety of wonderful skills and attributes to playing sports, but it always should be done with civility and with respect and with dignity. The messaging has to come when the kids are young, otherwise it carries forward into the professional locker rooms. The problem really isn't in the Dolphins locker room when they had that bullying incident a year or so ago. The problem is purging those win-at-all-costs and my opponent is dog meat. Let me take that and fuse it with your reference, John Sexton, to steroids. And I was talking to one of the dads on the sidelines at my daughter's baseball practice, and he played college baseball in the 1990s when steroids were becoming popular. And he explained something to me medically, which I hadn't understood before, to be honest, on about steroids, that it's not just about helping you build muscles, it's helping your muscles recover. So he and his fellow baseball players and the major league players were seeing these guys as fresh in August as they were in spring, which puts enormous pressure on people not to cheat. And just in my, in the Wavemaker conversation that is posting today, I speak to a couple of authorities who, who social psychologists who study cheating. One is from Duke University, Dan Ariely. And he said to me, he does experiments in class and finds that a lot of people will cheat a little as long as they can justify it, that they're still a good person. Fewer people will cross the line when it challenges the, their fundamental sense of self. But, but he did say that competition, increased competition, does indeed exacerbate the cheating problem, which comes back to the rule of law and the laws and how we enforce them. So what do you two think right now, and since this is a spring training special, what can we do in baseball 
from the youth level all the way to the majors to send this signal as strongly and loudly as possible? Well, as you know, the New York Yankees, and John and I are both Yankee fans, uh, in recent times, we had Andy Pettit, the pitcher. He got a pass for using steroids because he convinced people that he was using it for recovery purposes from an injury. On the other hand, A-Rod lied, lied multiple times and concealed the fact that he was using it truly on an ongoing basis for performance-enhancing purposes. Now, you you can draw some sort of a line between legitimate health utilizations of steroids and illicit. The problem is drawing that line. The law always has to draw lines, and sometimes the lines are rather wavy. So let me take you right to a line that John Sexton, you drew in your book, and you recounted this story from before my lifetime and before you guys were born. The White Sox scandal, and in fact, you took it from the White Sox. We can, we can draw a line from the White Sox scandal and who was punished and why and who wasn't. We can take that all the way to Pete Rose. Tell me about sharply drawn lines and how they benefit us and sometimes hurt people who maybe shouldn't be hurt. Yeah, and, and context is an important part of it, I think. If you're going to justify what happened to Shoeless Joe, and then Shoeless Joe is a... Remind us of the story of Shoeless Joe. So, so Shoeless Joe uh, was banned from baseball. He was one of the great ball players of his time, Shoeless Joe Jackson, and... Uh, uh, in the World Series where uh, he was accused uh, of cheating, and the evidence seems to be that he, he was involved somewhat in cheating, he, he would have won the MVP award. You know, he, uh, he batted in the mid-300s in the series. Uh, he made great plays in the field. But the time was such that baseball was just framing itself as the national pastime. And... Uh, you know, sports as as when they're in that time, are they going to go in the direction of professional wrestling or not? You know, what, what how much how much are they going to try to present themselves uh, as 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 being a pure game? And uh, given the social dynamic of baseball at the time, as a context, the the penalty to Shoeless Joe and the the Black Sox, as they came to be called is more understandable, even, even though the case of Shoeless Joe is very ambiguous. Right, but just for our audience, rem remind us what the Black Sox did. They threw the World Series. Uh, I mean, the bottom line is they lost the World Series. There's alleged to be mob connections. It's all a very ambiguous picture, okay? The, the, it's hard to go back now and do uh, the kind of investigation we would do today. Pete Rose was not an ambiguous picture. Uh, the, the, the question about Pete Rose was, did he ever bet against his team in a game in which his team was playing? It's on stipulated facts... He was guilty of serious transgression. The, of a clear rule. Yeah. The yeah. clearest rule. Thou shalt not gamble. In a moment, one of baseball history's Hall of Fame sinners and one of its saints. Which player, the saint or the sinner, would my two distinguished guests choose for their dream lineup? Not as easy as you might think. And with two of America's leading educators right in front of me, I'll ask them what they're observing about the strengths and weaknesses of today's students who are entering college.
Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Wavemaker Conversations. I'm Michael Schulder. My guests, NYU President John Sexton, author of the book Baseball as a Road to God, based on his very popular class, and Arthur Miller, head of NYU's Tisch Sports Institute, former professor of law at Harvard. Professor Sexton, former professor of theology, you have a PhD in religion in America. And so from the point of view of forgiveness, and I read with great interest your chapter called Saints and Sinners in Baseball and some of the best stories in there that I've heard. And if you just want to tell me, because I want to always root for the good guys, not just the guys who are good on the field, but off the field. So tell me how you sit down and watch a baseball game and know that on your team, there might be saints and sinners, but you're still rooting for that team. Tell me about a couple of the saints and sinners that really strike you in the history of baseball. Well, first of all, I, I, I am extremely reluctant to get into the moral behavior of players beyond the, 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 the field. Let's, let's take two characters, okay? Uh, both Ty Cobb and Roberto Clemente are in baseball's Hall of Fame, and both should be in baseball's Hall of Fame. Uh, Ty Cobb was a morally depraved person, widely known to be such. Probably wouldn't have gone to the bathroom on a seat that Roberto Clemente had used. He was a bigot, among other things. But more than a bigot, he was just a nasty human being who, you know, went through his life, uh, uh to so shedding people and relationships that Virtually no one attended his funeral. The magnificent thing about Cobb's life is that by the end of his life, he knew what a hollow man he had been. Uh, I mean, he knew how depraved he was. Uh, on the other hand, Clemente, I mean, Clemente died on a missionary expedition. I mean, he, when a plane crashed, he was bringing food to people that, and, and, and medical supplies to people that needed it. If you were writing out a lineup card, you know, and you could only have one of those two players, you, you could make a powerful case for the fact that you should write into the lineup card Ty Cobb. <laughs> okay? Clemente was great. Except here's a question, because, and, and I think Professor Miller, you might be able to get into this. One of the a social psychologist I was talking to. Actually, it was Dan Ariely of Duke, but I also spoke to the designer uh, of the Stanford prison experiment, if you remember that, where they divided 24 Stanford kids in 1971, 12 prison guards, 12 prisoners. It got out of hand. They had to be stopped because the prison guards took their role too seriously and the prisoners, nobody stood up for each other. And we talked about... Um, he and Dan Ariely talked about the role of social contagion. How you behave is often influenced by how the people around you behave. And so one couldn't one make the argument, and did this transpire in real life, that a man like Ty Cobb would have such a negative social contagion effect on his team that you wouldn't want him on the team. It, it's conceivable. In the world of sports, they talk about good clubhouse people and bad clubhouse people. Uh, and there's no doubt that the bad clubhouse person pollutes the environment. And the good clubhouse person often stays with the team far beyond his skills indicate. Um, Ty Cobb was a racist. He may have been a rapist. He conceivably was a murderer. 
Uh, it came out of uh, an environment in Georgia that had no humanity, and that was the life he lived. Clemente is a saint in John's world and in my world because he saw his role as a great baseball player and a symbol of what is good in Puerto Rico as a mission to extend his influence in the most positive fashion. You know, I think only two people have been elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame by special election. One was Lou Gehrig because of the terrible disease he sustained. Clemente was elected before he was even eligible because of the extraordinary conduct he exhibited off the field. But before you make too much about social contagion, remember the 2011 Red Sox and 25 taxis. Remind me of that story. There was a team with no chemistry at all, Mm -hmm. okay, but they won the World Series. The point that Arthur made and that you made about the social psychology of this is, you know, this is a factor. You know, the dysfunctional Yankees in the mid-70s, you know, were still champions. And uh, there are a lot of examples of teams where where you you have a bunch of nice guys and if they can't hit the curve, uh, you know, or, or, or run a base, uh, the, the team's not, not, not in the choice between Clemente and Cobb. You're not talking about that. But, but I still think that uh, a manager would, probably 60% of the managers, if you had to fill in one or the other, you'd fill in Cobb. And you wouldn't be concerned about the off-field behavior. Probably right. And there also is a distinction between professional athletes this is their livelihood, college athletes, and high school athletes. That's a great point. Uh, So the ambiance of the clubhouse or the locker room or even on the field is bound to differ in each context, and the good guy and bad guy dichotomy will probably mean different things in different contexts. It was 125 years ago. Uh, and a different time, but this gets to what we want to teach our kids. Charles Eliot, the legendary president of Harvard for 40 years, uh, once said to the, of course, all-male student body, boys, it's three cheers for Harvard, two cheers for Yale when we play. Well, that's uh, Does that spirit still live? It depends. Uh, I mean, there, 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 are, there are nooks and crannies. It doesn't, it doesn't live in Division I college sports on most campuses. I'll tell you that. It doesn't live in the SEC. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, it's interesting, Professor Miller, that you said you know, how important your mission is now to teach children and their parents. And this gets to a line in your book where you say, uh, you talk about baseball's power to teach, inspire, and transport us. The verbs are separate. <laughs> uh, uh, it, 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 it teaches us all of the time to live slow. And, and in these hyper-stimulated times, and this is especially important as we bring up the next generation of children in this country and around the world, hyper-stimulation is the basic modus vivendi. It's, it's, the, it's, it's, it's almost a necessity of life. And teaching our children the wonders of, of at least occasionally living slow, and I deliberately use the adjective not the adverb, just just noticing, getting you know into the Grand Canyon, or noticing the ballet of ball players 
or the decisions that are going on between pitches, depending on the count. You in the talk game. about living slow. I, I, until I had a conversation with a coach of my son's who was a Georgia Tech College World Series pitcher, I didn't even realize. And this is why, after being a fan of the Miracle Mets, growing up with that, partly connecting to it because why? Because I was watching it with my father, right? And growing, once I got into adulthood, I stopped watching baseball and all the people I know were sort of drifting away from baseball because, oh, it's so boring in between pitches. And then I spoke to this college pitcher, Phil Perry, if he's listening, and he told me about all the mental processing and calculations that happened between the pitchers. I'm not sure. It's living slow for the fans, but I'm not sure that's living th- slow for the players, is it? Not, not, not. If uh, uh, that's exactly the point I'm making, there, the, it, it appears to be motionless, but there's so much activity. If you go to a game with Arthur and me, the conversation between the pitches is. Do you hit and run here? You're sending the runner. Do you, do, you, do you throw a high hard one here? Do you throw a curveball? Is it in the dirt? And that's the constant anticipation of what's going on as part of baseball. And you see it in the, 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 the rise and fall of the bodies of the fielders. It's why television is a better sport. Uh, that is, football is a better sport on television than baseball is. When you go, as John and I do, to the ballpark, and you get that full view of the entire field, not the camera angle of pitcher to catcher, and you watch the movement of all the players, and you can look into the dugout, you can even look into the on-deck circle. There's something going on all the time, whereas in football, that camera encapsulates the entire context of movement. So John and I do not think of baseball as slow. You all are speaking of baseball the way many naturalists speak of birding. And in fact, just a few minutes ago, you said, look out on my ledge. The red-tailed hawk nest is there and they're about to mate. That might, there might, might be a little action there, but, but then once they get in the nest and they sit on those eggs, do you, do you just take your, is, is that the equivalent in, in many ways of that time between pitches? Well, the sitting on the eggs is not, okay? I mean, they, they turn the eggs three times a day. There's not a lot of action. <laughs> There's not a lot of thought going on. Uh, but, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, in the Baseball is a Road to God course, one of the books that we read is Hemingway's great book, The Old Man in the Sea. And of course, you know, Santiago says, uh, I'd like to meet the Maggio. You know, he was a fisherman, you know. And I think the analogy between serious fishermen and serious baseball fans is a good one because don't mistake living slow for a lack of action or an apparent slowness. It's the, the, the point that I'm trying to get in the phrase living slow, and then, then it leads to the inspire and transport of the trilogy that you introduced this segment with. The, the point I'm trying to get to is if you begin to notice the wonder of the things that you generally do not notice. Now, that can be in a ballpark the way we do it. And the more you know about the sport, the deeper and more complex it becomes in every picosecond. Or it can be fishing, or it can be in the Grand Canyon, or it can be birding. 
there's a way of noticing. So, so then when the sen- when your sensitivities are greater, when you have this state of higher sensitivity, that's the classic mystical experience. That's the inspire and transport. And, and, and suddenly you break planes of existence and, and uh, you, 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 uh, you, you enter what the students of religion would call the numinous sphere, the you know, mysterium tremendum et fascinans in the words of Rudolf Otto. So, so, and you're before this wonder that can't be put into words, but it's, it's deeply at the experiential level, but it comes from the heightened awareness and sensitivity. And the, the claim is that that baseball, more than any other sport I know, although obviously I'm conceding for other people it could be fishing, for other people it could be birding. Uh, you know, that's why the title of the book is Baseball as a Road to God, not Baseball as the Road to God. And yet what you're describing to me, here's what here's where fishing maybe has an advantage only because of what's transpiring in the stadiums today. There are so many distractions. It is hard to focus on what you're talking about. Can we do something about that? I'd be curious as to Arthur's angle coming out of his work at the Institute, but I'm, I'm going to tell you, I am a conversational person of the mind. Uh, stories can deal with the ineffable. It doesn't have to be a cognitive syllogism for me. Stop for the audience, because honest to goodness, I didn't know what the word ineffable meant until I read your book. Please describe it for me, because it's a very important word in your book and your I class. didn't know what it meant until he told me how dumb I was. <laughs> I, f- I feel reassured. Thank you. You notice Arthur couldn't say that he came to understand it after he read the book, because he still hasn't read the book. No, well, I have read the book, John. You know I've read the book. You haven't understood the book, but well. that's another issue. But in any case, there are... Those things, as we sit here, you know, in a great research university, there are those things that are known and that have been discovered and they're, they're, they're capable of being absorbed in our cognitive categories. And then there's the knowable that we haven't yet known that the great professors like Arthur and others are out you know, discovering and we'll come to know them in 10 years or 20 years or a thousand years. And then there's a third category, which is that which, which is, is unknowable in, in the ways in which our minds are capable, you know, in words. They're inexpressible in words. And, and this is the ineffable, the, the, that which is inexpressible in words. And, and, and the religious experience is in this domain of the ineffable. Now, many religions then go and attempt to uh, describe and transmit that experience in in myths, not myths that are uh, falsehoods, uh, the way you know, Americans tend to think of myth as a synonym for falsehood, but but myths in the in the classic sense of the Odyssey and the Iliad, this or great poetry or epics. They're, they're stories that bring us to this uh, plane where we, we're experiencing something, but we can't put it into words. We have to tell a story about it. Many religions then go to another step, which is to attempt to reduce it to thoughts, creeds, doctrines, and things. That's where we begin in trouble. And that's the, the typical dividing uh, that comes, sometimes even the killing that comes uh, from religion. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this ineffable part of the human experience where I know that Lisa, my wife, loves me 
and she knows I love her, but it's not as a result of a syllogism. It's something we know more than anything else, but it's not as a result of a symbol. It's ineffable. And if I may ask you on a very personal level, because I've read about it, and Lisa is your, your late wife, correct? Right. If you don't mind sharing with the audience, because it, there's something about that story that to me teaches me something about resilience and faith combined, which is very moving to me. Would you mind just sharing that story? Well, I'm not sure I'll share the right story. First of all, I'll give Arthur the credit for bringing us together because it was in his class that we met. It, it, it took us all of two months to get married. Uh, we knew immediately and we were more in love every day for 32 years. But they couldn't stand my class. No, we bo- getting married, they'd get out of it. We both loved your class. Well, I loved your class. I won't speak for Lisa, but, it's, but I, I, I believe she loved your class as well, notwithstanding her general dislike for law classes. But uh, she was 10 years younger than me, uh, so she wasn't supposed to die before me. And uh, she was perfectly healthy, or at least we thought she was perfectly healthy. And it was a Sunday, January 21st, eight years ago. Uh, it was a glorious Sunday. It was an accidental Sunday. I wasn't supposed to be home, but a meeting had been canceled, and we just had this wonderful Sunday. And uh, both of our children are grown. Our younger child was returning, had returned to college for the second half of her freshman year. And about 6.45 in the evening, I went in and asked her uh, if she wanted me to get dinner yet. She said, no, come back in half an hour. I'm reading something I want to talk to you about at dinner. Uh, and... Uh, when I came back, she was gone. It, it was one of these aneurysms. It was a congenital aneurysm. And it, it, it challenged my world. I mean, it challenged my existence. Uh, uh, it challenged me to go on. Uh, we're a loving family. Through loving family and good friends, author among them, uh, I was able to go on. I take that's what you mean by the resilience. Uh, and uh, I was able to go on. It was very fashionable for a while, for uh, not in the first six months or so, but after about a year, it was fashionable for people to uh, try to find the good match for me, you know. To uh, uh, and uh, finally, my daughter said to one of these folks, "What has become the family motto in that uh, on this subject, uh, which is there's more of a chance my father will become a Jesuit priest than that he'll date again." And the reason for that is that Lisa is still very present in my life. I I, uh, I experience her love. I, I try to live my life in a way that's worthy of representing both of us in the world. And uh, now we move into the realm of faith. You know, I don't believe in an anthropomorphic God, you know, in green pastures. I don't believe in an interventionist God. But I do believe that there is a transcendent plain. I believe our life has meaning beyond the the physical years we spend in this world. And I believe that, well, I'm still in love with Lisa and uh, she still enriches my life. So I don't know if that's what you meant. But. Well, it is. And part of it is <laughs> what you're saying resonates. I haven't experienced anything like what you've experienced, but it's interesting. It, it, it doesn't seem trivial to make a transition back to baseball now because the way you were describing living slow, I think in some ways relates to this because it almost, it seems like it helps one process something like this and notice even some of one's feelings. If, if you're accustomed to not racing through everything, does that make sense? I think part of living slow is a greater, uh, you know, Confucius said you start with 
the discernment of your own Tao, your inner self. You know, Socrates said, Gnothi Sautan, know thyself. You start with that, and then the, the it turns out the best way to do that is to be in what Martin Buber called an, uh, an I-thou love affair. Uh, I, I developed in my reflection about this after Lisa's death what I call the notion of the ecstatic thou. In fact, I'll, I'll bring it back uh, to baseball uh, through a story that's not in the book. I think it's not in the book. I open baseball as a road to God with the story of Dougie and me in the October 4th, 1955 in the World Series. and The Brooklyn Dodgers. Tell us that story because... The crucifix and so forth. Let, 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 let me... I'll come back to Absolutely. it. Absolutely. It's a good story and uh, a group of young documentary filmmakers were making what is a phenomenal film called uh, The Brooklyn Dodgers, The Ghosts of Flapwish. It's a two-hour documentary on HBO. A friend of mine, Tom Oliphant, uh, had written a book about that day when he was early writing the book uh I, we were at dinner together and i told that story and he said can i put it in the book so it was in his book and they had read the story of dougie and me in october 4th and they called and asked if they could come here to interview me so uh, we knew that in this room they would be asking me about this story that morning, Lisa got me all set, you know, because I'm not very good with clothes. And she got me in the right blue shirt and a matching tie and jacket. And I got to the door of the apartment. She looked at me and she said, honey, you look great. It's going to go very well. Uh, she said, just one thing. She said, your stories about the Dodges are phenomenal. But this is going to be on national television. She said, are you sure that they're all true? <laughs> you know, now, I, I, authors heard me say this, being a theologian, and I used to say it a lot at the law school. To me, there, there is a difference between truth and fact. These are not necessarily the same thing. This gets to the story of mythos. But the key thing in this story about the truth, as you know from the book, is, is the fact that, you know, Dougie and I were the only two Dodger fans in our neighborhood. That was the heart of the matter because the Yankee fans used to beat us up. And I'm walking through the park and here's where this notion of the ecstatic thou, as I came to call it. The ecstatic in Greek is, means literally to stand outside of. You know, So the thou stands outside of it. And in the words of the poet, it, it looks at you as others see you. But you're able to hear the ecstatic thou in a way that if somebody else said it, you might punch him in the nose. You know, you mean your stories might not be true. You know, you, you get defensive. But when it comes in the context of deep, unified love... Yes, I'm walking through the park, and I said, you know, now that she brings it up, I'm not 100% sure Dougie was a Dodger fan. And, you know, I had told the story dozens of times, you know, all over. And, and if you ever do get around to watching the, the documentary, you'll notice that I made the choice not to use Dougie's name. Now, when I got to the book, I said, look, if he's not a Dodger fan, you know, It'll come out, but because, you know, reputations unravel over such things. And I had told this story dozens of times with him as a Dodger fan. And the last thing I wanted was him to step out of the shadows and say, you know, the son of a gun's a pathological liar. So on the documentary, I didn't use his name. In a moment, what one thing could baseball change that would make it a better experience for the people who watch the game in person? We'll also get observations from these two leading educators on the state of America's students. Actionable Intelligence, coming up 
on Wavemaker Conversations. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations. I'm Michael Schulder. My guests are two of the wisest baseball fanatics you'll ever meet. The president of NYU, John Sexton, and former Harvard Law professor, Arthur Miller, who is now the head of NYU's Tisch Sports Institute. As I was uh, sitting in your waiting room, I looked at the Chronicle of Higher Education, and I think there might be a tie in here because it says uh, the headline is freshmen, college freshmen, driven but depressed, 82% seek to be very well off. And then when you look at the jump page, you see that a lot of kids coming into college now feel like they don't have the social skills. They like a college that offers them a lot of social opportunities because they've been socializing online in a way that they weren't 10, 15 years ago. They feel like they're a little behind the curve on that. Let me ask you two educators, you two teachers, you know, in this hyper-competitive world, and we're sitting here at NYU, really one of the most difficult colleges to get into. In this hyper-competitive world, how do you teach children to live slow? What are the consequences of that? And am I asking the right question? No, I think I think you're asking a very, very important question. And uh, what what what's 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 happened in our society generally is uh, a devaluation of thought, an allergy to nuance and complexity. We like simple answers. The best thing for people in our society, I'm speaking now specifically about America, although it's permeating the world, is a nice ranking system. I mean, soon we'll be, you know, putting out a U.S. news ranking of the best religions. You know, they go right down and tell us which is the number one and the number Mm. two based on various criteria that no doubt will be objectively applied. Uh, We're becoming very utilitarian. So I have very rarely had conversations with 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 political leaders uh, in which uh, the question about an education hasn't been a job preparedness. Indeed, this survey in the Chronicle of Higher Education talks about uh, the motivation to get that great job after college. Right. And I think, part, you know, part of this, and I, I, the last, I have a, uh, at least one dinner a week with students when I'm in town, and last night I had uh, one of these dinners with this, with uh, 40 students that are chosen by lottery. They, they say they want to come and then they're chosen by lottery. And one of the first things I say to them is that they, they've got to learn the difference between need and want. And, and the a key to a joyful and fulfilling life, of course, is to follow your passions and need as little as you need. If you're lucky, and I've been very lucky in my life, Arthur's been very lucky in his life, you, you're able to do a lot of what you want as well, you know, but you should teach yourself as much as you can uh, by living slow and enjoying the things that are there like birding, like fishing, like the canyon, like uh, like a good ball game, which might be, you know, my friend Jim Traub said in, in, in writing the book Baseball as a Road to God, I chose the most difficult form of baseball to make the case by choosing professional baseball and uh, the easiest form of God to make the case by, by uh, choosing the kind of progressive theological version of God that, that, that is not anthropomorphic. He, he said it would have been much, much different if John had chosen Sandlot baseball 
and green pastures God, you know, <laughs> it would be a very different case. John's the philosopher. I teach law students, or I try to teach law students, and increasingly what I see is a group of people who can only express themselves in 144 characters or less. They can't write sentences or paragraphs or connect thoughts. Uh, students who increasingly believe research is Wikipedia. They want the quick answer. They assume everything is subjectable to a quick answer, and it's findable online. They don't back away from the machine and go inside and think. I think that is a cost of this magnificent technology we have created to store and retrieve and exchange information. I think it has a dark side, and I think it is showing up in terms of blunting skills of writing and orality and thinking. And you've seen this evolve over how many years of teaching? More years than you've been on the planet. 50 years, 55 years, I guess. I so appreciate it because I am 55, so I appreciate you thinking that that was more years than I've been on the planet. But let's close it by bringing it back to a little actionable intelligence now. We talked about all the distractions at the baseball game. We know, given the stories and your understanding of, of the value of watching a baseball game the way it could be watched, it's one of those exercises that can train the mind. And we know now with brain plasticity, things we didn't know 20 years ago, it might it might create channels in our brain that can appreciate this slow observation technique. If we could get prominent people to get in to get to those owners and say, look, let's make a couple of changes so that we can watch a baseball game in a stadium the way it should be watched and that would benefit us more and help us reach the ineffable. What change would you make? One change. Noise. The, 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 the pervasive noise. Now, nobody, nobody wants to think and uh, as, a re as a result, they don't want to talk. And the result of that is you, it's hard to find a restaurant where you can have a conversation. And we've now, beginning with basketball and then through football, which has to be even more thunderous because the stadiums are open and so forth. And by the way, in Atlanta, we just learned that they were pumping in artificial crowd noise to distract the other team. And beyond that, they, they feel a need to put up on these jumbotrons mindless games while people should be thinking about what's going on on the field. So I'd just, I'd, I'd, I'd have a kind of decibel level rule. I, I agree with John. I also would caution Rob Manfred, who happens to have been, like John, one of my students at the Harvard Law School, that this pathology of speeding up the game the commissioner Rob Manfred is the new commissioner of baseball. He's a wonderful guy. So nothing I say should be in any way suggesting anything other than he is a wonderful guy. But the pathology in baseball right now in his first statements is we've got to speed up the game. It's taking an additional half hour with no increase in action. Of course, that additional half hour is commercial time. So let's speed up the intentional walk. Things like that. Don't do it at the expense of the ability of the fan to watch a 360-degree 
game. That is the experience. It is not simply how fast the ball leaves the pitcher's hand and reaches the catcher. It is that 360 universe of the stadium, hopefully quieter, as John suggests, so that the fan can absorb what is truly, I still believe, America's game. I can't top that. Thank you. NYU President John Sexton, Professor Arthur Miller, Professor of Law and now Head of Sports and Society and, uh, and many other things here at NYU. Thank you both for joining me on Wavemaker Conversations. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. If you like what you've heard on this episode, you can subscribe to Wavemaker Conversations on iTunes, and you can always find this podcast on the new CBS podcasting platform, Play It. That's play.it. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder. Thank you for listening.